With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever you are. Today is the start of an incredible new series, Why Web 3, powered by Y Whales. Today I'm here with my co-host, Jessica Billingsley, and we have an amazing cast that we're going to really go and dive deep into TradFi versus DeFi. With the start of a new series, why not just go right into it? Uh, so Jessica, how are you today? I am doing so well, Jay. I'm here in Denver, Colorado, and it's snowing. So when you're in Colorado and it's snowing, that's as good as it gets. Fabulous. And so this is our this is our second uh, episode. We kind of did the first one, just you and I getting to know each other. Uh, and now we've, we've invited some uh, some people to really come in. And in, in the first part of the series, what we want to understand is the progression of Web 1 and 2 into Web 3. And so the reason for why Web 3 is because we really want to understand where these industries are going. And so we're starting off with TradFi and, and DeFi because it's a very easy you know, way to look at it. As we move further into the series and into other episodes, we're quite simply going to have a little bit more of a challenge trying to understand logistics, trying to understand other parts of the, the series. Uh, but for this one, it is just like, this is where the heat really comes to play. And so I'm going to go ahead and start off. We, let's introduce our panel for today. Uh, Eli, would you like to start with a little background of how you ended up here today? <laughs> sure. Uh, I ended up here today uh, because I've been a longtime friend and... Um, uh, of Jessica's uh, and uh, come have sort of both feet uh, firmly in the traditional finance uh, world. I um, uh, spent a long time in graduate school. I have a law and business degree. Uh, spent some time at Lehman Brothers. Uh, got out of there just before uh, the collapse. Better lucky than good, but worked in structured um, credit there. And so was uh, um, started my career uh, as an eyewitness to um, the speculation and uh, and craziness of the U.S. mortgage market and credit market in 2005, six, and seven, um, uh, now I am a partner, founding partner of a um, multifamily office, a registered investment advisor called uh, Gen Trust. We manage about three billion dollars uh, on behalf of ultra high net worth families and institutions. Uh, our client base um, initially was uh, and is still predominantly financial services professionals themselves for whom we manage their personal money outside of their portfolio. So uh, I started my career, uh, as I said, on Wall Street on a trading floor. My partners all started their careers um, on trading floors. Uh, and one of the things we noticed was that uh, nobody who started their career inside an investment bank, not nobody, but most who started their career inside an investment bank, don't tend to hire a uh, investment bank to manage their personal money. Um, <laughs> and so we um, we created a business to target those folks as our uh, clients, uh, hedge fund managers, private equity principals. Um, uh, we now uh, help 
entrepreneurs uh, and some famously wealthy people too, um, uh, as well as some larger institutions. Eli, um, as, as a as a real quick, what's what's the thesis be, thesis behind your investment strategies that you use? So uh, it's very and that's a good question. It's very particular to individuals. So I. Prior to starting GenTrust, I was part of what's called an OCIO, an outsourced CIO for some large institutions. And there, you know, one institution is not all that dissimilar from the next. Uh, you know, a foundation has to give away 5% a year. You sort of build a diversified model of equities, fixed income, private equity, uh, alternatives, real estate. Um, pension funds, they have a liability they got to uh, meet. You build a lot of fixed income to meet those liabilities. You take some risk. Uh, and other other asset classes as necessary. Uh, with individuals, it's very different. Um, uh, people have have their own utility functions and their own sources of risk. And so we we spend a lot of time building customized portfolios. We don't pick stocks. Um, we're not uh, pitching product by any means. We're fiduciaries. Um, we're building balanced portfolios, but that are intended to balance the. Uh, wealth of our clients in a way that'll sort of optimize their long their their wealth towards their long term objectives. So fabulous. And, and you know, what uh, what percentage off the top of your head is cryptocurrencies or blockchain related technologies? Very low, if not Perfect. zero. Perfect. Fabulous to meet you, sir. Uh, Lily, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm I'm good. Good to good. be. So back. how'd you end up? How'd you end up here today? Uh, you dragged me here, kicking and screaming. Um, no, That's generally the case. Uh, <laughs> now, I think this is a super interesting topic, and I and I think that there's there's a lot of divergence, but now we're starting to see convergence per the custody conversation we had earlier on Fireside. Um, but my background, the nickel towards really um, got sucked into Goldman Sachs out of college because I needed to pay for college, um, studied econ, comp lit, and uh, engineering uh, as my master's, and essentially had no idea what I was doing, but ended up doing banking and the financial institutions group. Um, and then did private equity in Hong Kong, um, ran a hedge fund portfolio, and then since then built up my own, I guess, family private office. Um, but then started trying to trade crypto, uh, felt desperate and confused and like a total idiot uh, pretty much all the time because crypto doesn't close and never gives you a break. And it came to a head when I was holding my husband's phone over the toilet saying, we need to find a better way because this is not working. Um, fast forward a couple years, um, I'm a general partner at uh, QIS Capital, which is an artificial intelligence-driven quantitative hedge fund for cryptocurrencies. Um, we've essentially taken our volatility down to about Netflix um, from crypto levels, and I've done pretty well to, on a risk-adjusted basis. Um, you know, like I think we've been... We've been in the solidly triple-digit returns for, for a while. Um, and then that kind of took me down a rabbit hole of kind of building in uh, DeFi and Web3. Um, and then that became like finding networks and building friendships. And um, now I do quite a bit of angel investing um, in Web3 as well. And just trying to, you know, win and help win and, and broaden the ecosystem and bring people, especially women, minorities and, and stuff into the, into the Web3 ecosystem. I don't think I need to ask you what percentage of QIS holdings is cryptocurrencies. <laughs> 100%. There we go. And, uh, and, and, and Zem, how are you today? I'm great. Actually, I'm uh, in Toronto. It's not snowing here, but it's raining, which is quite unusual for Canada. Um, but it's nice. It's getting to plus 
above zero, so you can actually walk outside, which is a good news. Um, uh, myself, I'm. Uh, I guess I always say that I had about seven careers, and I've done anything from building satellites for a Russian space agency to uh, uh, being at the, at the bottom of a mine, underground mine, when I was at McKinsey and Company, and then doing a, a strategy for a hedge fund in Cayman Islands uh, that is trading gold. So <laughs> pretty much a lot of very diverse background, but. What makes me relevant to this particular conversation is where I spent the last six years of my life, which is leading um, enterprise and technology strategy at Scotiabank, which is third largest bank in Canada with about a trillion dollars uh, balance sheet. So I started when the blockchain and Web3 was just a buzzword and nobody understood it and got all the way to, hey, what's going on? <laughs> uh, so so I, I love this space. I've been, uh, I had a few journeys into Web3 and then the last four, four months just totally addicted to YWL. So I spent my days and nights uh, with the team and reading and, and trying to get deeper into this. One of the things that particularly interests me is it's just fascinating how many things that we currently have in traditional banking that could be replicated in DeFi. And this is scary from one side and another one is just so exciting. Fabulous. So again, thank you guys all for joining us today. And um, before I I, kind of kick this off uh, and we dive into some articles, and this is a little going to be a little bit of things in the news today. It's relevant. So as we're recording this right now, it's February 11th. Um, Hopefully, everyone's made their plans for Valentine's Day. Um, Jessica, you know we've talked quite a bit about the the transition from Web two to Web three. And the transition from Web one to Web two was relatively seamless. Most people didn't, you know, didn't notice anything. Uh, their bank account still worked. You know, they already had the PayPal account that worked before in Web one. It worked in Web two. Do we think that it's going to be that easy of a transition for these institutions uh, to transition into into the next version of of the web? That is a great question, and of course, it is. Uh, I think the answer is it won't work until it is that easy. So (laughs) right now, Web 3 is very much like the very early days of the internet. It's really just nerds, and it's very complicated and fairly challenging to use, and it really helps to have a computer science degree, right, (laughs) to understand and know what you're doing and not to get lost. And I mean, how many, I don't know, Jay, how many calls you take a week of folks who do something seemingly innocuous and 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 risk losing a fair amount of their their crypto investments and so for us to truly transition into web3 it's going to take new products new services and a more seamless transition at least that's my opinion maybe unpopular Lily, you you've made that transition what what's your what's your thoughts around well yeah but i mean you you've you've straddled both worlds you understand you know tradfi and, and now your your defi do you believe the institutions today are even thinking about about the next version of the direct attack on their industry? Because when we think of Web two and and some of the technologies, you know, we can think about music. You know, when Napster showed up, everyone dismissed it as, oh, it's it's only for hackers, it's only for illegal use, and the record companies really didn't think much of it. Um, we we see how that didn't work out for for them today. Um, but but what's your thoughts? Are they have they learned any lessons, or do you are they going into this with just their noses held up? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, Jessica, you're totally right. We're all nerds. It's uh, that feels kind of awesome because like, I think pound for pound, it's been the most like humbling and thrilling journey to be among people that's so low BS um, and fairly low ego, I think, compared to TradFi and Wall Street. Um, 
But I think in any established system, and this this can go for Wall Street or for, let's say, gaming companies, right? Like whenever you have a walled garden, whenever you have established winners and established systems and it's working to your favor to an insane magnitude, it's very hard to want to change it. Because like, like, you know, like I know JP Morgan has Onyx right now, but like for JP Morgan to go into to DeFi or, you, you know, even what we saw with Meta, right? It's kind of like, we don't really need you or like you right now. And you don't have a native advantage and people that are used to being shot callers, it, it's, it's an uncomfortable place. Um, and so there's hesitation, but then there's definitely also FOMO. Um, and that, you know, you can see through a lot of the crazy capital allocation into this place. And frankly, a lot of it actually isn't uh, purposeful or thoughtful right now. Uh, maybe it's just part of the cycle. Um, but, you know, it's it's going to be inevitable, right? People say like metaverse is coming, but it's like we still have the post office, but very few of us are like dependent on the post. We're mostly email, right? And then even from that, we're texting and the text signal services have gotten very sophisticated. Um, so I feel like we are already into the metaverse, um, but our definition of it keeps evolving and to the point that, you know, I think Web3, anything that can be tokenized will be tokenized. It will be inevitable. Um, and I don't think people go in kicking and screaming. I think people are going to hit a tipping point where the customers are there, the advertising money is there. Um, and then at the end of the day, like if you're Wall Street, you look at that and you say, OK, wait, do I miss out on this opportunity and deal with my traditional counterparties or do I get on board? And there's a lot, and this is maybe a theme we can talk about, but there's a lot of bridging on-ramp infrastructure that is going to be massive. Um, we've invested in some of them, and I think it's going to be a very cool play to see how to incorporate the ecosystem and make everybody feel comfortable and welcome. Lily, I'd love to just, something you mentioned earlier that that kind of ties into is this convergence. So what do you think it takes to, to reach some of the convergence of traditional markets and crypto markets and, and what are you seeing already in your work? Um, there's certain touch points, like for instance, um, governance is one, right? So when we started this, like decentralization was supposed to be a big thing. Trustless permissionless decentralized. I get it. And then you saw massive amounts of like, you know, whether it's trends, zeitgeist conversations around, you know, no more banks. There's a podcast called Bankless. They're awesome, smart guys, but it's like that whole zeitgeist of like, screw Wall Street, let's just completely destroy it. Let's reinvent the wheel. Like this thing rolls. Maybe we can use it for things. Like now it's like, well, DAOs have delegated teams. Delegated teams have delegated individuals. People are seeking expertise. Like decentralized organizations are putting in governance models and incentives for governance models. That sounds a lot like, you know, companies, right? So there's kind of this, you know, it's like a lot of times, uh, as an extreme example, like I have, I have kids, you could tell them to not touch the stove. It's hot, it's hot, it's hot. But then sometimes you just got to let them touch it and be like, oh, that's hot. So I feel like DeFi is coming around to a lot of, you know, governance is a prime example um, of that. So like there's, there's concepts in there that, and we can get into deep into this, like how it maps into each other that have worked very well in TradFi because it's through trial and error. It's through a lot of expertise, experience, like a lot of thoughtful building. Um, that I think DeFi is really starting to discover. And, you know, a lot of the interplay between TradFi experts and DeFi experts and bringing that together is also helping people broaden their perspective. I mean, it's worth remembering, just to go back to Jay's analogy, uh, it's worth remembering, just to go back to Jay's analogy, you know, it didn't work out for Napster either. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that doesn't mean that 
we aren't headed someplace. But uh, just because some folks are planting flags early as to where we're going doesn't mean that they'll be around to protect their flag once once we get to wherever this this leads. Yeah. And what do you think about the the coupling or the non-coupling of, of traditional markets and cryptocurrency? What's been really interesting about some of the latest volatility in the markets and the the reaction to the, the U.S. Uh, Fed saying they're going to in, increase interest rates this year has been uh, both volatility in the traditional stock markets, but also in the crypto markets. And so I'm curious, you know, what you think about that, Eli, and when or where you might see that convergence. Well, the real interest rate is uh, the great um, uh, uh, you know deleverager of markets across all securities. Uh, it is not a coincidence. This isn't the only reason why cryptocurrencies are taking off, but it is not a coincidence that art prices are up. Uh, Miami. Uh, beachfront property prices are through the roof. Cryptocurrencies are high, um, uh, and um, equity—you know, growth, ec- growth tech equities are all high. Uh, and the real interest rate has been negative for the last uh, couple of years. Um, money has poured in, and what the Fed is saying uh, is that there's too much of it sloshing around, uh, and we're going to take steps over the next uh, 12 months, um, and and. What the market is saying is actually that the Fed is going to have to take more steps than they are have led on yet. Um, the Fed's behind the curve to pull that um, excess liquidity out of the market. Uh, and when that happens, uh, it's not good for any uh, securities. And I would think that that's probably true for cryptocurrency as well. Um, you know, the interesting observation I think that you know Jessica you're pointing to is that. Uh, people have talked about cryptocurrencies as a store of wealth or as a um, hedge to inflation. Um, the higher inflation prints imply the higher the Fed will have to raise interest rates, the faster the real interest rate will go up. Uh, and both in that context, cryptocurrency and tech stocks uh, have taken a hit. Um, and then it's also worth remembering that the people who trade speculative tech stocks are often the same people who uh, trade cryptocurrency. Um, And so there's a behavioral correlation potential there too, which isn't to say that there aren't fundamental underpinnings that should drive value over the next 10 years in both markets independent of each other. But over the near term, what's going to drive performance in both markets is how quickly the Fed pulls liquidity out of the system. On that note, Does the Fed, and, and when I say the Fed, I mean overall, do they have the proper people to understand what blockchain technologies should be in the future versus what they are today? Have they invested in, and brought on people that actually understand versus we see the, the news that comes out? We see you know, what, what, what was being talked about and, and essentially the, uh, the press releases they put. And it's just the really easy answer is they're just wrong. They're just completely wrong. And so do you feel like there's there's at least any effort being made to try to find experts in this industry to collaborate with them and help them transition? Uh, I would think so. I mean, they, they tend to be uh, traditionalists, but but thoughtful, interested, 
non-partisan and non-sort of, uh, um, you know, not particularly set in their ways. I think it's worth remembering um, that governments, especially governments with reserve currencies, get tremendous value from maintaining their reserve currency status. So uh, it's not in the interest of the United States government to see um, uh, rival currencies become popular. Uh, that said, um, nor is it in the interest of China, particularly. Um, that said, you know, I think part of the conversation here that um, Lily was referring to is, is there's all sorts of interesting layers and applications that, that take place over and above whatever the price of a Bitcoin should be. Um, and so I think, I think there's a natural evolution that's possible towards interesting applications with tokens and things like that, that, that move beyond or in parallel to whatever, you know, the role is of these things as currencies. Uh, and so my guess is the Fed and the U.S. government and China, et cetera, are, are interested in trying to learn about applications that can be built on top of Web3, not interested in supporting the currency, sorry. Um, so when I think about governments, I always think that um, the financial, ultimately what they're interested in, what are the fundamentals of what is driving their behavior? And so the number one thing is the stability of the financial system. So this is what the, the, the Fed is most interested in, but it's trying to do that so that it doesn't kill innovation. So it's, there's sort of a balance between the two that is constantly happening. And if I were to just go back to my experience whenever I worked with the, with the government, it was always a lot of interest and then fear at the same time. And what fear, what fear drives bringing in the resources, the knowledge, whatever it takes to really try to understand what is happening. So my answer to the question would be, I'll be surprised if they don't have the people, the, the right security teams actually working and trying to figure out what are the, what are the things that could happen or could go wrong. Um, looking at various um, scenarios of, you know, the, the failure of crypto overall. And I think crypto actually gains such a big momentum right now that the Fed would be worried if it collapses. And then, so now there is a third element to it as that we want to preserve this, the, the financial system that we know works, but then we also know that this new system has emerged and they just went too fast, so we can't let it fail. And on, on the other side is, well, we also want to make sure that we are uh, we staying competitive to the other, other uh, countries, so like China, Russia, and then, so now it's actually a very interesting time to see how this entire geopolitical environment is is uh, moving in what direction. So, you know, Russia just, I'm originally from Russia, so I always read the news and I'm like, I just don't want to listen to it because it's just either super frustrating or doesn't make sense or like, I, I really don't believe what, the, what is in there. So, and so Russia going to Kyiv is actually a very, a very interesting point that happened, I believe, this week, so... So as long as, as long as we're t staying, you know, north of the border, and 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 you know, we'll we'll leave Russia out of this for a second. But coming over <laughs> to Canada, uh, where you currently reside, 
Um, you know, neither in the United States nor nor in Canada are, have any of the true uh, regulations been set. No, there's no definitive mm-hmm. like here's how we're going to regulate it. They tiptoe around quite a bit, and that leaves in the larger institutions, the larger banks, the larger funds really struggling with with where they can go. And so, taking jumping into uh, crypto now is a little bit of a risk, even for a large institution that has that may be a public company. So, KPMG Canada as we pivot over to them, uh, just went ahead and without any real knowledge, or not knowledge, without any real notice, is now saying that they hold a, a, a significant uh, amount of cryptocurrencies. What, what's your thoughts on, on, on that, especially being in, in, uh, in that neighborhood? So I know that KPMG was looking into crypto for quite a while. Um, and I know a few people who were part of the team. And uh, and I think it's important also to recognize what they're coming from. So they're a service provider. And so to them, being ahead, a step ahead of anyone else is very important. So, you know, from one side is, is preserving that competitive advantage. And from another side, I mean, they can... They can do what, what what banks cannot do, for example. And then if you were just to look at the banking industry, and it's funny because I had a conversation last week with um, um, with, with, with with someone who's ultimately running the retail bank. And I told him, hey, what do you think about crypto? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, what is it, right? So uh, anyway, I sent, him, I sent him a link to Coursera, a DeFi class, a master class. So, so this is the last, I mean, and these are the people who are making decisions. So right now, because it's not really been as, um, uh, as widespread, particularly in Canada, um, and the government is really protecting, uh, protecting the banks, it, it hasn't really gained the momentum. Um, yeah. Yeah, Lily, what's your what what's your thoughts on there? Because again, it, I love you because you you've already bridged these two these two worlds um, and, and run a fund. So KPMG, you know, grabbing hold of this. I mean, are they using a third party? Or do you think they're doing they're doing this in house? They're like, hmm, accounting's fun, but microstrategy's better. <laughs> like, we're just gonna stuff our bags and get better valuations because this accounting life is not as smaller but um no like honestly as a service provider we use nav right now in cayman islands i'm like if somebody else can audit DeFi, or actually we use spicer jeffers as our auditor if you're listening get get into crypto more like we can't touch DeFi. they can't reconcile they don't know how to look at it right so we're on centralized exchanges is costing us opportunities if kpmg is like hey i can get on DeFi and i can support you um and it costs them getting into crypto and getting and getting wrecked a few times which they will um I would switch over in heartbeat, right? And it's not just me. So I think that service provider getting ahead of the curve is very important. Um, but I also find it really strange. Back to Eli's point about, um, you know, the, there is no correlation. Like there is no, um, I guess, what is it called? Like decorrelation, right? It's no decoupling. And it's a highly correlated risk asset. Except, you know, in equities right now, you're seeing back to fundamentals. You're back to seeing value investing, event-driven investing. And crypto's like, uh, TA still, like I'm staring at the same chart as everybody else, just delevered. Um, and so I think for people like KPMG and stuff, what are they going to do as a capital allocator? You either go into pseudo ETFs, you go into the big boys, right? Like the, the galaxies, the JPs and whatnot, and hope they allocate for you. But you're really just still playing in beta. And once they go through a couple of volatile cycles, are they going to say like, this isn't working? 
And the guy that's allocating, is his job going to be protected? Because you know he's not participating in the movement. Um, but it's a nice toe in the water. But I, I think they're underestimating the volatility of the market. So to to that point of volatility, I would love, and you you touched on leverage there for just a minute. Can first, can we just talk about what leverage is and kind of define define that for for our folks, and and then maybe talk about the differences and the volatility differences. Um, Yeah. So if like typically at a hedge fund, and yeah, you see a lot of this, and Zem, I'm sure you do too. If I'm a hedge fund, I go to you, and I'm like, I'm levered five x. You're probably like, that's a lot. Right, but if I said I'm levered 125x, like it'd be like that's nuts. But if you go on like you know everything from DIDX right now to Binance, any exchanges, it's very easy to get 20x, 30x, 50, 100x leverage. Um, and you know we and we should actually circle around about why that is and why the DGen environment is what it is to go into fundamentals of what is DeFi really. Um, but that kind of leverage is because people want juice and, and that creates a lot of volatility because it's, you know, if you have automated market, um, borrow, lend borrow systems where you're, you know, 200 times collateral, 200% collateralized, people don't mind getting liquidated if what they borrow, they can make good on through whether it's farming or investing or speculating. And so the massive amounts of leverage with massive amounts of liquidation creates the volatility in the market. But that also create and all of that is on chain and traceable. So that also creates opportunity. But in TradFi, it would be incredibly destabilizing. So let's kind of circle back. Just you know, Eli, you, in your introduction, you talked about starting your career, the the meat of your career at Lehman Brothers during the uh, great uh, financial crisis. And uh, you know, if there was ever a lesson in leverage, uh, I think it was there. So maybe you can kind of break down how you think about leverage. And then uh, I'd love any reactions you have to, you know, DeFi being levered 125x. I just want to make sure it's not like everybody in DeFi is levered like crazy. Of course, of course. (laughs) I I know less about leverage on the on the DeFi side, but um, just at its basic level, uh, anytime you buy something or uh, um, you have to put up some money, and maybe you borrowed some money to buy it. Um, and when when you've bought something, uh, if the price goes down, uh, the person who has the equity takes the first loss, uh, and the people who provided the leverage or the lending behind it, um, you know, don't take losses until the person who took the equity is completely wiped out. So in the case of Lehman Brothers, what you had was a um, investment bank that to compete with other investment banks, specifically. JP Morgan and, and Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, once those once those markets, I guess it's just Bank of America at the time, uh, when when the financial system was deregulated in the late 90s, um, you had traditional banks move into the investment banking world. And the investment banks, the only way they could compete was to take on leverage. So Lehman Brothers was, you know, uh, 40 times levered. Uh, and what that meant was it had a massive balance sheet of exposure, but only, I forget, about $30 billion worth of equity. Uh, and it made two bridge equity loans of a type on real estate. Uh, one to develop a land in California called SunCal, one to a Tishman Spire development called Archstone um, uh, in, in New Jersey. 
or sorry, in New York. Um, and, and both of them were wiped out with the mortgage crisis. And that cost Lehman about 10 or $12 million, 20 or $12 billion, excuse me. Well, if you only have 30, 25, 30 billion dollars of equity supporting 40 times that amount of assets, and you lose $12 billion on two deals, and everybody's not sure whether you're marking the rest of your deals the right way, um, you got a big problem. Uh, and it's a big problem that permeated the entire financial system. Uh, and, you know, I think what Lily was saying about leverage is that it destabilizes markets. I think that's true broadly because as folks take, you know, the people who provided the loan, just a quick example, take it to your house. You, you borrow 80 cents in the dollar to buy your house um, and the value of your house goes down 20%. What's the bank going to do? The bank doesn't want to own the house. They're going to kick you out and they're going to sell it for whatever they can get back for it. Uh, and they're going to do it as quickly as they can. Uh, now, in a mortgage case, if you keep paying your mortgage, there's a bunch of other things. But in the trading case, they can do that in a day. Uh, they can say, you know, you lost money. You either put up more money or we're liquidating your portfolio. Um, and so what you see across any market that has a lot of leverage in it uh, is that losses can spiral. Saw it in 1987. Uh, it was sort of the first time people really caught on to it with, the, yeah. with uh, Black Monday and the great, great crash in 87. Um, when people have borrowed money to invest and the equities or the value of what they've borrowed to invest in starts to decline, um, uh, those losses can spiral because the equity gets wiped out and the, and the folks who are there behind it um, take ownership of the account and liquidate it as quickly as they can to prevent themselves from taking any losses. They don't care about fundamental value. They're not in the business of owning those assets. They're in the business of getting their money back because they're lenders. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's the way leverage works. Um, and it, and it works really well as long as asset prices are going up and it works, um, pretty badly to the downside, uh, if, if asset prices start to fall. Can I add some color to that? Um, I think this actually is an interesting point between TradFi and DeFi in that, like, you know, when Lehman Brothers, I remember at the time, it was like 67% of your portfolio was 0607 vintage. It was like terrible, but it wasn't properly marked to your point. And then on the banking side, you know, you have like 30, 60, 90 day overdues that you have to mark. But if you put it in the REOs, the real estate owned portfolio, you don't have to mark. And so there's a lot of human actions, including what the MDs told Barron's when they bought them, like um, down the line, like they people got big bonuses for faking accounts. Right. Like like there's a lot of human action you can do to delay the inevitable. Whereas in DeFi, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, ETH drop by 1%, you're liquidated, smart contract, right? There's no mercy, there's no delay, there's no renegotiation. And so that's also why, like, I think TradFi is more like Dornbosch loss, where it's like, you can delay it, but it happens really quick, where DeFi just like happens really quick all the time. Which probably adds some stability, right? Because everybody knows what the exact time they're going to get their money back. The interesting thing about DeFi, and you know, Zem is someone who's worked on on these protocols. You understand the difference between TradFi is it's really obscured. No one knows what's going on behind the scenes. It takes you know months, if not years, later to understand what caused these crashes, what caused the delevering of some of these asset classes. Where where when we're talking about DeFi and we're talking about on chain, you can clearly see it. And so some, some act, you know, whether you call them bad actors or, or just really smart people, they can look and see where the, where those delevering spots are. And they can say, like, if I can get this, this asset to go down by X percent, 
it will cause a chain reaction and go down, you know, go down pretty quick and be able to, you know, so, hey, if I need to short this and I want to make a bunch of money, I just need to get a, a 7% decrease to hit my mark today. And, and you know, that we're talking about an unregulated space. You know, there's no problem with them calling up a bunch of their friends and making it happen. You know, Zem, in, in your experience now, kind of working in and around this uh, the space now, is that really a lot clearer than when you were in the, the TradFi area? Oh, you know, 100%. I mean, to me, just the whole transparency that comes with blockchain is just incredibly, it's, it's from one side, it is incredibly um, smart and promising. And from another side, it's super scary, right? So um, right now, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the lo- biggest regulatory um, uh, changes that happened recently in so-called PSD2 regulation in Europe uh, which is all about the right to be forgotten, privacy. So so all those things that need to happen, which give the person the right to just basically call to the institution and say, I don't want, I don't want you, you guys to ever know or tell anyone or have any records of me doing any business with you. <laughs> and that is a right. So think now about this right that, that there's just millions and billions of dollars that's been spent for all the banks to get compliant to. Um, what happened to that in DeFi? It's just non-existent, <laughs> which is very interesting because it's almost the opposite, right? Um, and I think there are just so many, there are so many parallels between DeFi and TradFi, but also so many things that almost go in the completely opposite direction. And so it's very hard to make predictions about where it's going to go, right? So a lot of people ask, are banks going to exist? Are they going to go nowhere? My view is that. They're going to exist because they're fulfilling a need. So the need is never going to go uh, away. So as long as there's one person, one person is maybe an exaggeration, but as long as there are a percentage of population that doesn't want to be tracked, <laughs> the bank is fulfilling the need. And that's just one of another hundred things that they are they're there for. Obviously, in recent news, there there's uh, a following on to some of the, the things can, that can happen in the traditional world. Uh, in the, uh, the DeFi world, we had some news around Bitfinex. So, uh, Lily, I don't know if you want to kick us off with a comment there. You, you mentioned it earlier. Well, there was a $3.5 billion Bitcoin hack that happened in 2016, 3.5 today. Um, and apparently this really bad rapper and her buddy tried to launder it and got caught. Um, and it was moved off exchange. But, you know, I guess it's, it was funny because I think in the TradFi world, everybody is like, oh my God, that's a lot of money. But I think in DeFi world, people are like, eh, like it happened. Or because like every day, like, you know, if you watch BSC, it gets hacked. Like, you know, it's like on a, at like Grey's Anatomy's on, BSC's hacked, right? It's like people slap their knees and like, oh, another hack, right? There was a $320 million hack out of wormhole. Um, and, you know, that that happened really fast and that was fixed really fast. Um, before that, there was a massive liquidation on like Wonderland and uh, people were just watching Sifu like use Tornado Cash to, you know, launder money in Lifetime with popcorn. I, it's like somehow it's normal and kind of expected. <laughs> Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and give a little glossary for all those that missed all of Lily's acronyms. There, BSC is Binance Smart Chain, the um, which is which is a dedicated chain that was uh, an open chain that was uh, designed by Binance. Um, then also this is right now it's how many billions was that was it in today's dollars? 
Uh, 3.5. $3.5 billion today, but when the hack happened, it was only 70, about 74 million. So in the terms of how big this is, as Lily's pointing out, um, there was a $300 million hack today. And if that same amount of time progressed, you know, we're, we're talking about it could be $10 billion in the future. So that's how fast and, and volatile crypto can be. And that's also how dangerous it is because the hack wasn't by, you know, one person's wallet. They, they actually hacked an exchange, correct? Yeah. I mean... Did they, or was it an insider job? I don't know. I'm just kidding. But that's how, that's how quickly and qu- how easily currents, currency or assets can move yeah. in, in this assets class. Now, I think the, to me, the most important thing is, is uh, not that they um, recovered it, but that they were able to track and find it. And, and I think that we hear constantly in and around the, you know, uh, the ecosystem that you know, crypto is used for crim- by criminals, crypto is for mo- wandering money and all these other things. Here's two people that have billions of dollars in a single wallet, from what I understand, um, that were completely unknown at the time to any federal agency or whatever the case is. And they were entirely unable over the years to launder this money, completely unable to do so. Um, The amount that they did was relatively insignificant and was being used to build a case on them the entire time. Does Does that change, you know, should this change people's minds when they talk about the the obfuscation of crypto? Crypto is super easy to track, and I know there's like data teams like that were X GRU MI six. There's data teams that's X Palantir. There's massive wallet tracking happening that have contracts with international um, intelligence, like from the Middle East to Europe to the US. Um, Wallets, not only wallets, but wallets web two, wallets web two location. Like it is very hard, even tornado cash. Like you can only launder like a thousand ETH at a time. It's like, it's really hard to launder money. <laughs> not that I've tried, but I'm saying like it would be very hard. Um, whereas like, you know, I think the, the, the hundred dollar bill is still probably your best bet if you're going to do any criminal activity. Um, I just watched Jack Reacher and that's probably why it's fresh in my mind, but <laughs> I feel like it's very hard to launder in, uh, or to get away with stuff in crypto if you're working with intelligence agencies tracking you. So would you say this made the news as not as a, hey, there was this hack of an exchange, but as a, hey, you can't hack an exchange because we'll catch you and it just takes a little time? Like How, how do you interpret why this one made the news? I think because her rapping is so cringeworthy and it's a... <laughs> Seriously, it's classic it's, social media effect. Yeah, it's clickbait plus like, whoa, that's a lot of money. Plus it feeds into the whole crypto is shady. Um, and it's just like great clickbait, right? But Fair going back enough. to our earlier conversation about, you know, is, is the government trying to get up to speed? Uh, I mean, this isn't the Fed, but uh, I think the answer is Yeah. Um, that's what I took from this was that uh, parts of you know, lots of different governments now are paying a lot of attention to what's going on in this space, um, and and they're pretty good at it. So, so I want to point out to me, which is which was barely mentioned in any news story, but the most interesting part of this was when Bitfinex was hacked and they lost at the time seventy seventy four million dollars ish. There, there, there was no insurance at the time, so they weren't backed up by an insurance agency that was going to go. Oh, we're going to take care of you. The government didn't care. No one, no one backed these up. This was a, this was truly a, 
we were hacked. Mm-hmm. Our customers lost lost money on this. And Bitfinex did not have the capital to just fix it. But I think what they did was a very, very interesting. And, and so they created uh, the LEO, Leo uh, coin, and they backed that by future earnings. And, and probably one of you can speak a little bit more intelligently about this. But essentially, they, they gave these over time to the people that, of wallets that they knew had lost money in the hack and, and repaid uh, to date, I believe, 100% uh, of those tokens. They, bought them, they gave them the tokens and they bought them back over time. They could only sell so many. Um, but those tokens still now live in the wild and they actually have an asset value. And now all of a sudden, the $74 million that they lost is being returned to them you know, $3.5 billion. And the this solution that they've come up with of how to deal with the fact that they've made their own insurance policy and put these tokens out there is to go and buy, um, take 80% of the $3.5 billion and to repurchase on the open market the LEO to- tokens and then just burn them, get rid of them entirely. What's the thoughts on that on on that procedure? And again, no cost to taxpayers, no cost to any insurance agencies to do this. I think a lot of it speaks to credibility and whether or not you want to risk your crypto reputation. And because there is no overarching paternalistic organization, um, and there's really no court of law that you could go to. Like jurisdictionally, it's a nightmare for a lawyer to figure out. Um, it's kind of like let's solve our own problem. Like if we want to stay in play, we need to make good. And so you have to be innovative there to figure out ways to take care of your customers or else you're just going to get, I guess, crypto canceled. Zem, what was your, what was your thoughts on that? I mean, coming from, you know, you, you've been at the bank, you've been in these protocols to, to, to self-insure like that. And I, I can, and again, it was a really creative solution. It, no one forced them to do this. They could have just said, you know, hey, whatever, no problem. But you're right; it would have taken a huge crit- hit to their credibility. Um, but you know, they never expected to, to to get these back. No, it's actually crazy. I mean, to me, that speaks to define and the strength and, and just the power behind it. And I, I don't, I, I don't see. I mean, even the entire entire example we've been discussing about them and brothers collapse, right? So it's they collapsed, <laughs> right? So that's what happened. And uh, I mean, part of the, um, the entire <clears throat> way uh, go- uh, banks are being regulated right now is all coming from there. And in Canada, I mean, we used to joke that like, if you think that uh, the management team is running the bank, you're wrong. <laughs> Regulators mm-hmm. are running the bank. That's it, period. And there are just so many ratios. So that, like the leverage ratios are just crazy, crazy small. I mean, you can do only certain things and anything that you ever want to do in you is just has to go through so much scrutiny that is almost insane. And so this, and that's one of the reasons why banks are so big and so cumbersome and there is like hundreds of thousands of people working there. And uh, from insurance standpoint, I don't see that if the bank were like, I don't think it would be even, I mean, the government would come in and probably save everyone and just kind of distribute but the money, but the bank probably will either has to be restructured or or just go on, then, you know, the government owns it, <laughs> so, which we've seen before. And then historically, that's been done. Well, two things. I, I think we, can we, can we sort of define what we mean when we say DeFi? We might have to uh, th- see if we want to uh, share this a little bit earlier. But just it, maybe, Zem, if you could just define what do we mean by DeFi? 
Well, I think it's pretty simple. Like TradFi, like everything goes through one entity. Okay. <laughs> DeFi, it goes through thousands and millions of entities. And then so ultimately there's no entity per se because it's all distributed. And so what comes out of it is that there's no longer this black box, which we call banks, um, that kind of, you know, nobody really knows how they make money, but you kind of have some sort of a sense and, and they're big, gigantic. They're, I mean, they are ultimately in the business of trust. That's all what banking does. And then from DeFi standpoint, it's trustless. So you can, you basically, you own custodian in a way of your own money. <laughs> and then you're able to, uh, just to trust the system versus the entity. That's not, I think that's the way I would define it. As we're talking about finance, though, is there kind of a lending aspect to it when we're talking about distributed finance and what that means? I, I would I would kind of think about it this way. Like right now, I think Main Street and Wall Street are very closely put together. Right, you have um, you have you know traders and funds that look at commodities because there's actual like farmers and commodities, right? Um, and then there's you know borrow and lending entities because people have real businesses and real homes. Um, and, and then there's a whole financial system built on top of that for capital efficiency and to trying to derive alpha. Um, but I would say DeFi right now is almost like Wall Street without Main Street. Um, because I think, and NFTs, I think, maybe a whole nother podcast, but that is, I think, the wedge into metaversal Main Street, if you will. <laughs> Jay's laughing. He's like, oh my God, we're going to But I think DeFi is more you know, that the, I guess the infrastructure, the financial infrastructure, because when you look at Web3 and tokenization, finance is the logical first step to build on. So instead of having odd, uh, market makers with counterparties, you have automatic market makers with liquidity pools. Um, instead of having lending borrowing with um, collateralization and like low negotiation, you have smart contracts um, that govern your collateralization ratio um, and, and so on. And so Part of the reason why DeFi returns are so high, if you take a million steps back, is really the risks are very high because you're testing out infrastructure without the actual Main Street support, um, which is coming, but it can't come without the infrastructure. And so that's why a lot of the liquidity providers, the staking, even the speculative activity, the tokenomics, it all seems very fluffy. But I think the purpose behind it is to create a system that can be anti-fragile, that can allow the onboarding of real, in real life businesses and purposes that the blockchain is really well equipped for. Um, and so also, you know, volatility follows because there's nothing really fundamentally undergirding that. Eli, what's, what's the, what's the, in your world when you hear, you know, permissionless lending and people loaning out millions of dollars, billions of dollars, and there's no intermediary. It's truly peer-to-peer run by, a, by relatively complex yet simplistic smart contracts. Does that even, I mean, do people in, in TradFi world where, where you're kind of solidified, do they even believe that this is real, a real thing or do they think it's, it's kind of more for people playing games? Well, I mean, you asked earlier, do we invest our clients' assets into crypto? And the answer is no, that's not, um, that's in part because um, some of our clients um, do it for a living. Um, what I what I would um, and so we're we're responsible for taking care of the rest of the, their money. Um, 
what I would say, though, is, you know, everything we've described is a market that's um, ripe for sophisticated actors to make a lot of money. Um, uh, we're very involved in, in currency markets and currency volatility through through some relationships we have. Most of the most sophisticated currency vol traders have moved to trade volatility on crypto and they're minting money. Well, where's that money coming from, right? If you're at the poker table and you're not sure uh, who the rube is, uh, it's you, right? And so one of the challenges that I think um, uh, we're gonna have to get over here as we move, as, as some of these applications transition and some of the traditional banking applications, is, you know, you have a bank account at Bank of America or Wells Fargo. Not only can you trust that up to $250,000 is going to be there, because Wells Fargo seems like a trustworthy place, but also um, you, um, but, the, but the U.S. federal government is telling you that $250,000 is going to be there, and you're going to get that. And uh, and that two hundred fifty thousand dollars can be spent on other things, that, and you have a sense of what that is. Um, and in the crypto space, the challenge is that the really sophisticated folks uh, are are going to be able to, for a long time, um, uh, run circles around the rest of us. And so the question is, well, should the rest of us be playing those games or not? Um, and uh, you know, that's, that's an open question. So, so to, to take that and just go a step further, let's talk about something that has clear, clear, like need and desire from the citizen base. Like people want crypto. They're very interested in crypto. I, I see it constantly. And as soon as I'm starting to be surrounded with people hounding me saying, what should I buy? I'm going to get into crypto is usually when I start layering off a little bit. Cause I know, okay, we're, <laughs> we're nearing the top of this, but, but in the same sense, there is a clear desire for alternate currencies. There clearly desires for, per, for a little bit of permissionless. Like, I don't want to have to, you know, ask permission to use my money in every case. And the clear case was um, I have a bank account and I had to receive funds in from a, another country. And I, I asked the bank, I said, hey, I, I just need the, you know, I, I need the, uh, the wire instructions for this. And they sent me the domestic ones. I said, no, I need, I need the international. And they said, oh, we need you to fill out a form for that. I said, I need to fill out a form to receive money into my bank account. Like what that that's what really hurts, you know, to and, and the reason why people that, you know, again, there's some libertarians out there that will absolutely agree. Um, but you know, I, I shouldn't have to ask about about these things, especially if I'm there's no issues on my taxes. I'm not audited. There's nothing wrong with me. But but that doesn't really mean anything to the government who likes to get involved and really wants to be you know kind of big brother in this case. And so I'll, I'll relay this or, or compare it to another industry where there's clear need, there's clear want, and there's professionals in play, which is the cannabis industry. And so you know we we see this this really ebb and flow and disinformation that comes. From the government agencies in and around the cannabis industry, um, there, there's a there's a very big desire, and and the the science is is relatively clear on it at this point. Um, but but Jessica, as I'm referring this directly to you, you know, what's your feeling of of how today that that industry is being handled in comparison? Do you think that that crypto is going to get a fair shot um, in adoption over the next few years? It ta- I think we need to consider. The, and this has been a challenge maybe for the last 
it, since uh, since the invention of of the internet or going back further technologies that the the rate of technological innovation so far outstrips our government's ability to respond via any type of regulation. And so I think, Lily, to your point of this infrastructure is being tested and there is a, a premium of return for those who are willing to participate in testing the, the infrastructure, we will have to see some regulation follow behind. Uh, as, as someone who's spent now more than a dozen years uh, also uh, working in the, the regulated space of, of the cannabis industry, specifically on the compliance side, um, traceability, accountability, tracking, the the government is always behind and always significantly behind the rate of business, the rate of innovation, the rate of actual dollars, and and then it eventually sort of normalizes and catches up. And I, I think the question that I have as it relates to markets are, how, how do we think, well, A, do we think that the U.S. government still has sort of a leading position in influencing this? And if we think so, you know, what are the early indicators that, that we see for that? And I, I'd really welcome, you know, maybe Eli, your thoughts first and, and then Zim and Lily. On that one. Eli said earlier. Sure. We're all in too much agreement right now. Um, and so when you mentioned like all the banks and all the FDIC insurance and everything, I totally agree. But what are you getting for that? 0.25%, 0.5%, like nothing, right? So like, if you go to Curve, like if you look at stablecoin and just play with the dollar back stable coins, you go to Curve and you're making, you know, four to eight percent, right? And if you believe in like Curve ETH, Convex ETH, you're making 30, 40 percent. Or you go to Anchor, it may not be safe. There's a lot of FUD, but you're making 20 percent on stablecoin. And so when you look at expected value and think about risk management, it's like, okay, the risk of protocol failure, the risk of hacking, the risk of breaking the buck on these stable coins, you know, the expected value, but I'm getting, you know, 15, call it 10 to 20% on stable coin versus 0.5% in my bank account. There's a lot. So there's certain things like if you're talking about liquidity providers, right? Um, on Uniswap V3, people are paying you the transaction fees. The, the, the protocol shares with you the transaction fees with people that borrow. Um, they might be borrowed for speculation. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Um, for things like algorithmic stable coins, like for the Luna system, Luna Anchor, it's the, the native actual borrowing lending uh, rate is about 12%, and it's boosted with reserves from uh, Luna and Terra um, to boost it to be 19% to attract liquidity. Um, with Curve, that's more of just the liquidity provision. People people are paying you so that you provide liquidity so that people can transact a stable coin, and those fees then go back towards the, the, the stable yield. And so, you know, in DeFi, without actually trading, you can get, you know, 10% conservatively. People in our Y whales are making like triple digits pretty easily. Um, <laughs> you get wrecked once in a while, but it, it, it's like the expected value that you're getting out of crypto with the risk factored in. If you look at percentages of fail, chances of fail on every single level, you're still coming out ahead from an FDIC insured bank account. And so I would argue that like when younger people look at this um, and crypto is very young, right? Skews extremely young. People are thinking, you know, like I got to take a shot, right? I got to take a shot because inflation's against me. The Fed's against me. Jobs prospects aren't great. I'm going to do worse than my parents. I can't afford a house like WTF. Um, 
And yeah. that's a great question, the, because you're talking do. about young people who are putting 100% into crypto. And so I, this is a you know, pr- pretty sophisticated uh, group here uh, spanning some, some risk factors. Uh, and Jay, I'm going to start with you. What percentage of, of your personal uh, net worth do you invest in crypto? Um, so if we're talking liquid, um, I would mm-hmm. say I'm close to 90 Now, now I'd like to preface that and say that not all that is at risk. So I don't have, uh, I'd probably say less than 40% of of that at this time would be in volatile currencies. Uh, The rest of that is is in various uh, protocols like DAI or USDC, uh, meaning these are stable coins that are backed generally by something more than hopes and dreams. Um, and which would be tether. So, so I, I am, I am not the norm. And I would say that that's a, the comfort level that I have, that I would rather be sitting on chain, uh, pegged to the dollar and backed by, in some cases, another asset. I do actually have some Paxos, uh, Paxos gold sitting out there somewhere just because why not? Um, it's easy to get. So, so that's, that's me. Sam, where are you sitting? Then I think I'm a little bit more conservative Jay, <laughs> than Jay. I'm about ten percent, ten percent of my liquid portfolio. Just um, and to me, I'm, I'm very. I mean, to me, it's all about playing. Oh, I, this is my play money. That's what I call it. It's really. I'm not really trying to make money. I'm just. I just have this goal of spending couple of thousand dollars every week just to go and test different protocols because that, that's the only way I can really learn. And then you know, my my thinking is. Um, I'm relatively new to to this space, so the moment I learn and I feel more confident and comfortable with my own strategy, that's probably when I deploy much much bigger funds. But I feel like I'm still in a learning space, so maybe that's that's the rationale for that. Well, I'll, I'll just share. I'm with you. I'm I'm about ten percent of of my liquid, uh, but uh, I'd love to. Eli, are you doing any in the space at all? Uh, no, I mean I think I have a thousand bucks of ether or something of ether. When was the last time as, you checked the price of that? Do you think of it as an investment? Are you, do you have any of your state, personal yeah. net worth invested in, in, in Web3 technology cryptocurrency at all? Are you asking me? Sorry. Yeah, you. No. No, okay. I got other things I can do with my money, but, but <laughs> um, for, the, for the rest, I mean, Lily has a as a trading strategy or a hedge fund, um, I think I don't want to put words in your mouth, but but a way of of extracting value from this marketplace. Um, that's you know, in the sort of my parlance, I would call that you know a, a trying to generate alpha. Um, uh, there, there's also a return that one gets from putting one's money at risk into a productive enterprise that grows over time. Uh, we'd call that beta. Um, sometimes it's lending to the US government that goes and invests it in the country. Some of it's in transfer payments, some of it's in infrastructure investments, some of it's investing in uh, startup companies or um, uh, or public companies or whatever it is. And, and markets are relatively efficient. You get a, a return from putting your money at risk, um, currencies, not setting aside cryptocurrencies, currencies have no beta. You do not taking my dollars and putting it into 
euros or yen um, or yuan or whatever, uh, um, there's sometimes a carry yield associated with it, but that's always made up. There's an arbitrage. It's always made up by the differentiation in the interest rates between the two countries. So there's no inherent value that one gets from putting, choosing to put your money in dollars or euros or yen. Or, or yen. Um, as you guys think about putting your money in cryptocurrencies, um, do you think of them as like investing in, in a company that's going to generate earnings and grow the pie over time? Or do you think of it as a investment that's, well, I have some money in dollars, but I also want some money in yen and I want some money in uh, ETH because I'm going to use it for something else down the road. I mean, the, the short answer is probably both, right? There's, there's a, there's a blended strategy probably for most of us. Uh, but I, I've got to know, Lily, are you like, are you a hundred percent personally? Where are you personally? I mean, we have a lot of like weird accounts, like trust and retirement and fidelity stuff. But like, I would say I'm about 60% liquid but about 30% overall net worth. Cause like there's like real estate and illiquid stuff that's just there. Um, but okay. if we look at crypto and the private investments we've made in crypto and we mark that up, then it's going to be a much bigger slice. Um, but yeah, I think I, I really, by the way, about crypto as a currency, now that Russia and El Salvador has adopted it, somebody should make an IRS case that Bitcoin is not taxable. Like, I think somebody should pay a law firm to go argue that. And that would be huge, right? Because it's a currency. It's the legal definition of a currency now. Um, while the rest is still like securities and some are actually CFTC considered mm-hmm. derivatives and commodities. Um, so they haven't sorted that out. Um, sorry, Eli, what was your, what, what was your oh, question? It was great. Like, do you think about whether you're investing in, uh, in, in just a currency or do you think about you're investing in a company like in beta versus company uh, alpha or currency yeah no especially DeFi is a hyper liquid venture market it's a hyper liquid insider venture market which is why i tend to have issues when venture companies come and ask for a 10-year lockup and they're liquid in six months and then they reinvest that money so you notice venture companies in crypto tend to be open-ended now because they want to get liquid reinvest essentially spin off a hedge fund within the venture fund and then manipulate the market with all that insider goodness, right? And they can do that legally. Um, mm-hmm. but, but really what you're investing in when you invest in these tokens are teams and products and you hope they reach network effect and you hope, but it's, you know, it, it's not safe to have hyper liquid venture markets and have them be able to be levered up a hundred times and have this kind of volatility and degening and Ponzi-nomics and high emissions. I throw an analogy out all the time that most people trading cryptocurrencies today have no clue what they are. Zero, none. And and so think of a bunch of people running into, you know, Walgreens and looking and going to the gift card aisle and they're super excited. There's shiny ones, there's red ones, there's blue ones, and everyone's getting really excited over these gift cards. And they're buying them, trading them, some of them have different values and and you know, but but very few people actually understand how to redeem those, how they are actually used and what the actual value is. It. I would say, and I, I, the majority of people that hold ETH right now have never been on chain, have never actually done a transaction on the Ethereum blockchain and have no clue what the future of it actually is compared to all the other ones that are out there. And that's a real, that's a real problem in education in and around this industry. And so until we can get valid sources, and that's part of what we're trying to do on this podcast today, is to try to help educate people 
that there's real businesses out here. There's, a, there's really great and amazing teams that are going to build the foundation of the next version of whatever Web3 is, and I don't think it's been defined yet. But that being said, there's a lot of scams. And we're in an unregulated space. There is no such thing as insider trading. There is no such thing as, as you know, an SEC oversight or anyone looking at it. And, and we like to say that we don't need to. Um, but the reason why I hold so much on chain is because I'm comfortable with it. And that's, that's my choice. And I understand the protocols I'm in. And so having an asset backed coin, um, I'm trusting those protocols and, and USDC is, is backed by a major bank. And, and so, and so is die. Um, so I, I just feel where I don't need the permission to send and receive the money I've already paid the taxes on. And, and I will say clearly right now, pay your taxes. Like that's the easiest thing. Like if you're making money in crypto, just pay your taxes. You know, that's, that's the one complaint they have is we're making so much money over here. And if you're in crypto and you're not making money, like you really need to take about six steps back and really reevaluate your entire thesis here because it's not easy, but it's also not that difficult if you're looking at it from a long-term strategy, knowing that again, you know, think of think of all the Web two companies and the Web one companies that people thought like there's no way anyone's ever going to put their credit card into an internet platform and buy books or anything online. That was crazy back in the '90s to think that you were going to take this credit card, of which you could call the company and they'd say they'd fully refund you, but nobody even thought that it was safe. They were the media was coming out constantly and saying, "Don't do it. This is terrible. Oh my god." Nobody even thinks about it today. Yeah, it's also interesting to to the point about like how the game is played, right? So like, you know, some of the protocols that I work with, right? Before to- token generation, you know, it's recommended you find a good market maker that can understand your product and support you in the secondary um, that helps your public sale. You, you go to all your VCs and say, are you selling? If you are, when are you selling? Can we stagger you? You have a strong vesting, you have strong tokenomics and you list properly. And then you have tokens that just like freaking list or like they go and they give people like, you know, crypto Twitter shillers, like, you know, I'll give you an allocation and they promise to get you 50 X and get you out. Like there's a ton of different plays, but it's important to understand like who's holding what and the data is all available. The data, like cross wallet data, sentiment data, who these people are, how they move, um, you know, on chain, all of that. And I think that's part of what's really frustrating is because the, the, the markets don't stop. We all need to sleep. And the data's out there. So knowing it's out there and can't do anything about it, it's like, what the hell? You know? um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think there's a ton of data to process it. It's, um, it's, it's, it's helpful. I was going to go back to what Lily was saying about how it's uh, venture-like. Uh, um I think the interesting thing there is, um, uh, you know, individuals investing in startups uh, have a pretty pretty bad track record. Um, uh, most venture has a pretty bad track record, although recently it's been better. Um, and so I, I actually agree with the analogy, but but this is a uh, this is a novel space which is going to develop in all sorts of interesting ways. Um, but it requires a lot of expertise to play it. And I'll echo a lot. I, I think I think we're at the point where the next, I like the saying, the next Facebook and Google of Web3 have not yet been conceptualized. 
And so we had the time when we just see the emergence of new technology, new way of thinking, and there's just a lot of exciting and great companies are coming. And so from the venture standpoint, I think it's a very interesting place to be because it's, it's, it's almost like the moment when you want to catch that big fish and, and well, I guess small fish that eventually will become a big one. <clears throat> um, and, and, and there's a lot of hype around it. So I understand that. And there are a lot of VCs, multi-billion dollar funds that's been launched. But at the same time, as long as you have a differentiation as a fund and go from a um, certain investment thesis, um, there's there's an interesting space um, where multiple funds can coexist. So I'm going to ask a, a question. We'll go around around the panel so you guys will get a chance to do this. What is in your mind today this, the, a singular or, or, or short series of events that will mark the merger of TradFi and DeFi? When, when traditional mm-hmm. finance will finally accept DeFi into, into their world, what's that, what's that event? And I'll, I'll, uh, Jessica, I'll kick it over to you. Well, that's why we invited all these really smart people to join us. <laughs> they could educate us on this topic, Jay. Uh, I think that it does take some some regulation. I mean, we, we've got to get uh, kind of that backward-looking. DeFi is tested. It's proven in the infrastructure and the innovation that's ahead of that regulation. I think some regulation comes behind. and And then we see... Uh, to uh, just to bring it full circle to my uh, earlier comment, uh, that and it gets easier for a layperson to use and understand, and I, I think it takes those three those three actions. So, I would echo Jessica. Maybe I'll approach it from a slightly different angle. I think um, ultimately people need to trust to what they're. So for, for someone to use DeFi, they need to trust the DeFi in the same way they trust the bank. And then, so how do you get there? And typically, you get there because you have two things. One is there's regulation, so they're the customer, customer first. So that's kind of where they come from. And then the second one, there is an insurance that can uh, that can insure uh, whatever whatever risk that you you will encounter in DeFi. So that's the first thing. And the second one is um, you know first time. I don't know how many years ago. First time I saw a, um, a smartphone, it took me <laughs> a little bit to figure that out. Uh, and so uh, it's been a long time ago. <laughs> but uh, it's similar right now, right? So how easy is it to figure out DeFi for an average person without you know spending hours and hours chasing through one protocol or another? <clears throat> that is, um, I mean, that's ultimately what will take or break it. Oh, well, I don't think it will break it, but that's what will make take it to the next level. Um, yeah. Lily? I mean, I think to Zim's point, right? Like one person can't possibly, um, can't possibly understand everything in DeFi. It's just humanly, mathematically impossible. But if you look at equities, if you look at fixed income, venture and everything, there's a whole group of capital allocators and a whole system of more standardized evaluation analyses, whether it's price to book, price to earnings, whether it's, you know, you know, market market cap to individual, how much it costs to acquire customers. There's a lot of metrics, which DeFi doesn't have yet. Um, but also, I think that uh, TradFi and, and MeetSpace teams have not been given the proper tooling to get comfortable. And so one of the themes that I'm really excited about that we've made a lot of investments in is actually 
like traditional meat space tooling. Like one of our companies is building the Bloomberg for um, crypto and they've signed up pretty much every big institution. Um, so through a Bloomberg terminal, like it's like the Citadels of the world, the Goldman's of the world, like all these guys are on the platform. Eventually they're going to be able to trade through that platform the way you trade through Bloomberg OTC. Um, another one of our companies, like they just created a dashboard that can work with 26 different exchanges. And without a cent of marketing, they've bootstrapped 1.3 billion in liquidity and another 2 billion in institutional money that they don't even count. And he's like, literally, I don't know how to market this. What am I doing? Um, and it's RIA tooling. And so I don't see a situation where everybody's going to research stuff themselves. But I do think that if capital allocators and if wealth managers and if people that are curious in the financial space have the tools to learn more about crypto, um, that trust element will be there to help normies on board. Eli. When... Is, when will I know that DeFi and TradFi have merged? That they're, they're at least, <laughs> you know, they're comfortable My mother with each does other. a transaction on blockchain. Oh, that's you know, like easy. I'll drop to, her an NFT. I'll drop her an NFT today, and she's going to have to mint it, and then she's on the chain. Yeah, no, I mean, something <laughs> has to happen. That, yeah, sure, but something has to happen. It could, it could happen soon. Uh, she's at the forefront, but um, she's the first person I knew that had an iPhone. Um, but um, going back to Zem's uh smartphone comment um you know there needs to be um for this from my perspective for this to take the next leap there needs and maybe i'm in this group too but there needs to be um a, a use case that forces the um next generation of adopters onto the blockchain and at the moment I think the closest thing is, Jay, what you were talking about earlier around, you know, international, moving money internationally is a pain. And it's been a pain forever and it's been costly forever. And uh, and there's a moment where those costs, but you can, but you know, you're when you do it, you know, it's going to happen. And there's a moment when those costs remain high and the trust that average people have in this system uh, becomes high enough that they say, well, we're not paying those fees anymore. Forget it, we're all, we're all doing this. Um, but there has to be some use case like that that pulls um, you know, older people, and maybe I'm in this category too, although I don't like to be, uh, <laughs> forces, forces folks to adopt. I think that's NFTs. I think it's like really? my, my, my CIO is like, his wife was like, I can't do DeFi, blah, blah, blah. And then she found an NFT she likes and she's like figuring it all out. And an example is like, and I feel like it's also like for women too, it's for some reason, NFT seems to be more resonant, but it's like when you talk about um, Maslow's pyramid and, and the third tier is like social belonging, your tribe, your identity, which is the next tier up. It's like, whether it's profile pictures or whatnot in the metaverse, you need to represent yourself, right? So like people spend a lot of money on shoes and purses and clothing and all that stuff. And NFTs kind of scratch the same itch, right? And, but through that, you're like, okay, let me figure out wallets. Let me figure out gas fees. Let me figure out, wait, what is this ETH? Instead of using it to pay gas fees, I can trade it. Like, and then it starts to get people on board and, if NFTs bring object permanence into the metaverse and with NFTs, 
it could become payroll, it can become healthcare, it could become insurance, it could become credit unions. So I think NFTs is probably the the low cost Trojan horse of of uh, crypto. NFTs as they are now, or NFTs as as right as, as, they, as they start to be used by mm-hmm. music by. Yeah, the content creators the, 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 techno- the technology like behind what an NFT is 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 brilliant and it's amazing and will change the world. What you're seeing right now, and and I, there will be nothing but hate mail coming in on this, is a real beanie baby, baby moment. Um, it, 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 there's a, there's a lot of of this, and I'd, I'd say 98 percent of NFTs out there are utter garbage, and it has nothing to do with the artwork. It has nothing to do with the team. It has to do with the fact that they were coded incorrectly. And so when you talk about the longevity of of the blockchain and the longevity of of what we can do in establishing that ownership tracks, um, you really have to understand the code of which blockchain you're on. And you have to understand, you know, the, the limitations because there are still there are still limitations of of what's out there. Um, and and you've seen, you know, when you see punks and you see bored apes going going crazy, they built it correctly. And you know, and the team behind it is is engaged, and and they understand the protocols, and they understand how to how to run a community, um, versus some of the other ones which could have duplicate artwork. Uh, and, and a similar size community, but they just, it's not going to last forever because they weren't designed to last forever. So I think, um, you know, what, what Lily said is absolutely correct. Once, once banks and once institutions understand the power of the blockchain, um, it's going to take off and it's going to be like anything we've ever seen before. The adoption rate now is, is fractional, maybe 2% of the population is even, is is even touching this. And those that are really don't have a a, a base understanding of what in the world they're doing because Lily, I, I completely agree with your point. NFTs are a fabulous thing to help you get off an exchange and purchase something. And, you know, if, mm-hmm. if all you're doing is looking at your bank account every month saying, yeah, it went up, it went down, it went this and everything else, you're not actually able to enjoy the fruits of your labor and what you've done and, and your investment strategy thesis and whatnot. Um, but but I, I think it's going to be a long road uh, to get there. I think it's going to take a lot of education, which doesn't exist. And that education needs to start in the schools, uh, grade school, high school and, and college and up. And I can say right now that's not happening. Um, at least in the U.S., we know it's happening in other parts of the world, and so I really, uh, I will say, I'm, I'm I'm worried for the United States and the fact that they've they're ignoring or dismissing Web three uh, for for a variety of reasons, and and I think that you know what what we saw in the news this week is our last topic that Binance um, is is making a significant investment in Forbes. And that's a really important important story to to make note of is because without education, without you know uh, uh, at least a neutral party, is does does Binance own Forbes? Absolutely not. It's a billion dollar deal, but they at least have a toehold in to stop the hate, to stop the fud, and to at least have a seat at the table of that board to say this is an important asset class. And I'm really excited to see what they do. Is there any other uh, comments on that? Well, I'll just be your glossary. FUD is fear, uncertainty, doubt in the crypto world. There you go. <laughs> Asia is already is already owned by crypto enthusiasts already. So they need a platform. They need a soapbox. 
it's important. It is absolutely important. And, you know, regulation, regulation and, and lobbyists around the world need to be educated. And, um, we're early. I mean, that's, that's the one thing is, is anyone that's in cryptocurrency thinking that, you know, tomorrow your grandma is going to start using this and everyone's, it's, we're not there. It's just not, and it's not ready. The, they're still building out the, the, the chains. They're still trying to understand, um, the best uses of the technology. But, but one thing's for certain. The, the the civilizations of the future are not going to be run on the SWIFT system. <laughs> Eli agrees with that one. That's Guys, nice. I, I, I got to tell you, this was one of the most fantastic interviews uh, we've had. I absolutely loved and adored uh, every second of this. Eli, Lily, and Zem, thank you so much for joining uh, Jessica and I on our inaugural uh, battle of uh, DeFi versus TradFi. And uh, again, Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys, so much. Uh, Jessica, any parting words? I, I just echo your words that uh, this was so fun. Thank you for spending the time, and I can't wait to see the final product. All right, guys. What this is? Y Web three powered by Y Whales. We'll see you next time. Y Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbach passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. YWales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywales.com. YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.